It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether, Agent Kruger, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. This week's episode, UFOs in Space. I'm going to put some extra reverb on that and post. You know, normally I'd be opposed, but I think this time you should go for it. Before we get started, Agent Ether had a story about something sort of weird related that she'd like to relate to everybody. Yeah, it's not quite a mind boggle, but do you guys know who Ed Solomon is? No idea. We don't bring that name up here. <laughs> is no. that true? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Any no. relation to Dick but, Solomon? No, no, I don't <laughs> think so. He wrote, uh, he wrote Men in Black, that okay. movie with Will Smith. Good movie. Oh, gosh. It's not an intergalactic dagger. Hold on. I'm going to start over again. Look at this dog. Oh, He's getting, our dog's getting tangled up in the mic in the mic cord, mic cable. Oh, my gosh. What a little butt. Poor guy. He's being a little diva. Edit. All right. Okay, go God. ahead. Let's see. So, Ed Solomon wrote Men in Black, the movie with Will Smith. And apparently, he was in this cafe, and he's chatting with these two ladies. And they start arguing about something very specific in... Men in Black, they were disagreeing about it. And he said, you know, if you like, I can clear that up for you. And one of the ladies said, I'm sorry, we do not need an old white man's mansplanation. And so (laughs) apparently he apologized and he left. And that was that. But then on the way to, I guess he went to the bathroom and he came back and the ladies apologized. But apparently it wasn't for saying mansplained. It was for saying he was old. (laughs) (laughs) he's still a jerk for trying to explain his own script to them (laughs) (laughs) he said uh well regardless she shouldn't have used the word old like that and he said he literally laughed out loud (laughs) well i'm sure he has a good sense of humor well he said he'd never heard man explanation before like he thought it was a, a joke you know and he thought maybe he'd heard it incorrectly and so he's like should i like go ask her about it or should i get back to work and he's like i guess I guess I should get back to work. And then and then later he was posting about his experience on um, Twitter and this woman found the thread on Reddit and she realized it was her. So she reached out to him and he knew it was her because she was talking about very specifically the thing her and her friend were arguing about. And she apologized and he let her know that she was actually right about the disagreement although he didn't specify what the disagreement was about. <laughs> mm. Yeah, now I'm curious, like, what were they arguing about? What could it possibly be? Because <laughs> that's that's not like a very controversial movie as far as interpretation goes, right? Right. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You got aliens, you got agents that go chasing aliens, and that's pretty much the whole movie. They're arguing about where he got his watch from. Really? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a cool watch. <laughs> yeah, you can look up their watches. They have they usually have cool watches in those movies. All right. Well, let's get to this week's episode. We're all going to talk about different stuff. I'm actually going to cover the Skylab 3 UFO photographs. And I like this one because it's unexplained and there's actual photographic evidence beyond the astronauts just saying that they saw something. 
So let's get into it. We're talking about a sighting on the space station Skylab 3. The sighting happened on September 20th, 1973, and the astronauts on board were Alan Bean, Owen Garriott, and Jack Lusma, L-O-U-S-M-A, Lusma, I guess, Lusma. They saw the UFO over the Indian Ocean and then continuing, it was on the edge of the Indian Ocean and then mostly over the continent of Africa. And then they went into the shadow of the Earth. But we'll get into all of that. Alan Bean wrote of the sighting in his journal a few hours after the event. Here's what he had to say. Out of the wardroom window, we saw a bright red light with a bright, dim period of 10 seconds. It got brighter and drifted along with us for 20 minutes or more. It was also moving relative to the stars. It may have been very near. It was the brightest object we've seen. So this statement sort of contradicts a little bit of what the other people describe, but it's close enough. Close enough for what we're doing here anyways. Other people, by which you mean the other cosmonauts? Well, first of all, they're astronauts, not cosmonauts. And yes, there were two other astronauts who were also there at the time and also witnessed the object. So at the time of the sighting, they were not in contact with ground control or control center. What do you call the... The people on the ground. Ground control. Ground control. Okay. They were not having any talks with them, and they have an onboard recorder, but according to NASA, the onboard recorder wasn't recording when the sighting happened. But we do have a recording from several hours after the event when they're talking to ground control. And here's the, the, I'll read the transcript of that. So Lusma said, did you tell them about that satellite we saw? Bean said, Yes, we saw a great satellite. We didn't know if we told you about it. Lusma, the closest and brightest one we've seen. Bean, huge one. Lusma, we've seen several. It was a red one. Capcom, no, you may have told somebody, but it wasn't this team. I don't remember hearing about it. Lusma, I guess we didn't report it. It was reflecting in red light and oscillating at, oh, counting its period of brightest to dimmest, about 10 seconds. It led us into sunset. That was about three revs ago, I think. Something like that. Wasn't it, Owen? From the debriefing document, um, they also have statements. So when, you know, when they go back from the mission, they land on Earth, and then they go to get debriefed, that means they're sort of interviewed and they talk to people about stuff. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that. I'll, I'll read a little bit of that document as well. But I'd like to point out in the previous one, before we continue, that they said it had a period of bright and dim as if it was like maybe rotating somehow, which is sort of interesting. And it seemed to be like a regular rotation from what he was describing. I don't know if that's important or not, but it's maybe a clue as to what was going on or what the object is. Still unknown to this day, but um, maybe one of you in the audience can figure it out, by the way. Shout out to our live audience who's here today. We got, uh, who we got here? We got Klaus, Gweezy, Ninja, Death, uh, Ninja Death something, and Yak. It, the name's abbreviated. Yak. <laughs> Yak. And is that, wait, is that, it's, my computer's kind of far away. Hold on, give me a second. Okay. It's uh, Ninja Death Star 25, and we got um, Cleaxis, actually. So welcome to the live show, ladies and gentlemen, and or gender neutral people. All right, let's talk about the transcript from the debriefing document. This one is a little more descriptive. So we starts off with Lusma. Things we saw out the window. Garriott. For example, we saw that satellite about a week before splashdown. 
That was one of the most unusual things that we saw, and I guess Jack noticed it looking out of the window. This bright reddish object was out there, and we tracked it for about 5 or 10 minutes. It was obviously a satellite in a very similar orbit to our own. It was rotating and had a period of almost exactly 10 seconds, because you could see the brightness vary with that period. We followed it until sunset, and it went out of sunlight just 5 to 7 seconds after we did. It held its position nearly the same in the wardroom window for that 10-minute interval. It was reddish in color, even when we were well above the horizon. And they mention above the horizon because the atmosphere can scatter light. So what he's talking about there is that it was red, even though the light wasn't being scattered by the atmosphere, meaning that the object itself was probably red because sunlight isn't. But uh, I'll probably talk about that in a little bit. As we approached sunset, it turned more reddish, presumably because of the sunlight change. What satellite it was and how it happened to end up in such a similar orbit, no one ever explained to us. And I would like to hear a few words from someone about that satellite. And the reason why he's probably really concerned about that is because they track objects in satellites. And this thing was in a very, very close orbit to the, to the space lab. It was so close, in fact, that it might have been within the uh, tolerance or error for their radar or detection. In other words, if somebody had detected it, it would have been close enough to be a possible collision. So this thing was dangerously close to the uh, to the, the space station, to the Skylab. And even though it might have been like 50 miles away or something, um, they're up there, they're, wrote, they're uh, orbiting the Earth, I, f- I forget the number, but something like 17,000 miles an hour. So, I mean, it, that at that speed... These ridiculous speeds, yeah. Yeah, at that speed, even like, you know, 500 miles is actually not that far. You know, that's a close call probably. So Bean says... You bet. We never saw it again. You'd think we would have seen it the next night, or it would cycle by another time. Maybe it did, and we weren't looking out the window. Lusma, you might point out that it never did take the shape of an object, but it was always brighter than any other star or planet in the night sky. It was much brighter. Now, that's a really interesting comment to me, because even though we have a picture of something that has a shape... It suggests that it was kind of too bright to see its shape by the naked eye. You know, you couldn't really make it out. And it also suggests to me that the camera may not have picked up a completely accurate picture of what the structure looked like. It might have been a little washed out, but um, we don't know for sure. Let's see. Okay, Night Sky was much brighter. Bean, we tried monitors and everything on it, but we could never make it into anything other than a bright light. Lusma. In doing T002, I had, on other occasions, at least once or twice, seen other satellites, although they appeared as star points of light. The debriefing switched to other topics after this. On page 20-1, during the debriefing on visual sightings, the red satellite was once again discussed. Garriott, do you want to talk about that satellite? Lusma, I saw a couple of satellites that appeared like a satellite would on Earth. I saw one that was not like one you would see on Earth, so why don't you mention it? Garriott, okay. About a week or ten days before recovery, and we were still waiting for information to be supplied to us about the identification. Jack first notices this rather large red star out of the wardroom window. Upon close examination, it was much brighter than Jupiter or any of the other planets. It had a reddish hue to it, even though it was well above the horizon. 
The light from the sun was not passing close to Earth's limb at the time. We observed it for about 10 minutes prior to sunset. It was slowly rotating because it had a variation in brightness with a 10-second period. As I was saying, we observed it for about 10 minutes until we went into darkness, and it also followed us into darkness about 5 seconds later. From the 5 to 10 second delay in its disappearance, we surmised that it was not more than 30 to 50 nautical miles, 35 to 58 statute miles or 56 to 93 kilometers from our location. From its original position in the wardroom window, it did not move more than 10 or 20 degrees over the 10 minutes or so that we watched it. Its orbit was very close to that of our own. We never saw it on any earlier or succeeding orbits, and we'd be quite interested in, ha in having its identification established. It's all debriefed in terms of time on Channel A, so the precise timing and location can be picked up from there. Okay, so they took four photographs of, the, of this object altogether. The first object is, oh, the first three are really kind of red dots, uh, probably largest in the second, but the first three, you can kind of see, it looks like a, maybe a red star or something. I mean, it looks a little bigger than a star. Um, is that what you post in Discord? You no, know, that's the fourth picture. The second photograph shows the red dot, but it also shows two other red dots alongside of it, which I wonder if those are other similar objects that did just didn't come close enough to the space station. Who knows? Could you throw up any of it? Do you have any of those? Uh, I don't have them ready to post, work. but I can uh, maybe put a link to them. Let me see. Uh, no, it'll take probably take too long right now to look them up and find them, but they're just red dots. They're nothing exciting. The one that I posted in the chat, that's the fourth photograph, and that's the one where you can actually see a structure. And if you just Google, if you, if you don't want to look in the other section in the general chat, if you just Google... Um, Skylab 3 UFO, it'll come right up. It's a uh, kind of weird looking. It looks like um I don't know, it's like a like a thing. <laughs> kind of like a blobby thing. And it was it was an object with sunlight reflecting off of it and it looks like um to me it looks like uh, the object uh, it does, the sunlight's not reflecting off the whole object. So in other words, it's probably not all of it that you're seeing in those reflections. You're only seeing some of it reflected in the sunlight. So uh, what that means exactly, I don't know, like what the actual shape of it is, but I'm guessing that the picture doesn't show the complete structure. And if you look at like an enhanced photograph, it kind of looks like, like it's got like, um, like a bird-like shape with like two wings extending up and then like sort of like a, uh, like a, a front part sticking in front, like where the head would be. It's almost like a Star Trek ship. It's weird. But it's it's hard to say for certain. It could just be a blob. I don't know. But uh, in 1973, the largest man-made satellite was about 10 meters across. We're talking about standard satellites. The Actually, the biggest man-made object in space at the time was the Skylab 3 that the object was observed from. Um, this object that they photographed, it's possible to estimate its size and... By estimating its size, we can determine if it was a man-made object or not because we know what was in the air or what was in space at that time. There were four photos taken, right? We can estimate the size of the object based on the fourth photo, 
Uh, because the first three, they just, like I said, they just kind of show dots, but the fourth photo actually shows a structured object or uh, something that's not just a dot that's useful for estimating size. So um, at the time, the biggest man-made object or satellite was about 10 meters across besides the Skylab. The Skylab itself was the largest man-made object in space at the time, and that's you know what the thing was seen from. So if we can estimate that the object was bigger than, let's say, 10 meters, then we can say for sure that it wasn't man-made because nothing else up there was that big. But if we can estimate that it was smaller than that, then we might be able to say that, yeah, maybe it was a satellite and potentially even identify the specific satellite that caused the sighting, especially because we have pretty good data as to where and when they were in their orbit. So we know pretty much exactly where the sighting happened, which helps us when and where, which helps us pinpoint, you know, we could look up, okay, what satellite was there at that time to help identify it. I looked at a report by Bruce Maccabee on NICAP's website, and he looked at a few different things. So first of all, it's useful to discuss, is this some sort of error? Is it a um, like a camera error, a lens error? Is it an object that's moving so fast that it creates like a streak because of the shutter speed being too slow? Or was the camera itself moved while the picture was taken? Or was the film flawed? So starting with the shutter speed, it was 1 250th of a second. So it was a pretty dang fast shutter speed. And if it was a blur caused by a fast moving object, that object was going really fast. And we can say for sure it wasn't man-made because no satellite could have moved that fast to cause the blur. So if that's the argument, then we could say right away that, yeah, it was a weird object. It was not a natural object like an asteroid or something. And uh, who knows what that would mean? It could mean anything, right? So if there was a problem with the optics of the camera, like the lens or something causing a distortion, that would probably also be present in other pictures. We have pictures from this camera. So you can look at the log they have a log of all the pictures taken from all of the cameras on board the space station, and you could look up the specific pictures taken from this camera, and there's not a single one with any sort of distortion that I saw that could cause any, well, no distortions at all, but especially no distortions that could cause something like this, like a light to stretch out and become sort of like a blob. Uh, so we know that there probably wasn't a, a problem with the optics or lens or anything of the camera. Because, like I said, it would have shown up in the other pictures. Right. Yeah. So the film, when there's a problem with the film, it usually shows up in a pretty specific way. Like, there's very distinctive things about it. Like, if you've seen, um, like, a like a overexposed something or other, or, like, a, a, a scratch on the film or something like that, like, it looks... It doesn't tend to have like soft edges. Where it has that, like, tail or whatever, like, or it has, like, that aura around it. Yeah. So according to this paper that I read, it was not an error with the film because the film errors have specific characteristics and this object does not have those. But uh, this is one where like, I'm not a film expert, so I just have to take somebody else's word for it. But I mean, it doesn't look like an error to me either. So I don't know. Uh, and another, the other possibility was that the camera itself was moving or vibrating while the picture was taken. But this is, can't really be the case because when you look at the other pictures, you can't see any distortions in the other pictures. And the astronaut would have to be swinging this thing around on purpose 
And I mean, with such a fast shutter speed, it seems unlikely that even if he was trying to make a shape like this out of a light, that he, he wouldn't be able to do it even if he was trying to. And I don't know why he'd be trying to. This is, I mean, this is like a military mission, basically. Like, they take this stuff very seriously. They're generally not going to be horsing around with their cameras and equipment. Uh, but also... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But also, if you look at the shape of the object, the camera would have to move. Uh, if the shape of the... If the object was, let's say, a star or something, then you would have to move the camera in such a way to get those three basic points, you, you know, left, right, and then up and down. And I just don't think that would be possible to do with such a fast shutter speed and the parts of the object that are brighter, you would have to pause at those, those specific places as well to make that happen, which seems very, very unlikely that you'd be able to pull that off by hand, even with a machine. I don't know. And also if something was moving or if the camera was moving around that much, the light would be like streaked and looped and you don't see that kind of an effect on there. You see more of like a diffusion of the light. So it's almost certainly not that. In other words, it's probably a, a real object in the photo. It's not some kind of error with the film camera or operation of the camera. Right. So the question is, what is it? What is it? That's where it gets weird because, uh, well, so they were able to estimate the size of the object and um, they were able to do this because they got real, the astronauts got really lucky and they went into the shadow of the earth and the object followed them into the shadow. And one of the astronauts had the uh, sound mind to count off to actually time it. So he didn't have a stopwatch handy. He counted off in his head, you know, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. So it's not totally accurate but it does give us a reasonable ballpark. It's going to be within a certain range. And it was said, I think in what I read earlier from those transcripts, one person said five to seven seconds. Another said five to 10 seconds. It doesn't matter if you choose five, seven or 10 seconds, it'll at least give you a general idea of the size of the thing. So you can use that to estimate its speed and distance since the object was on a very similar trajectory to the space station. And you can use the focal length of the camera to estimate its size. Um, now they did, I, I can't really do these calculations because I'm like really bad at math, you know? <laughs> oh, and the name of the astronaut that did the, the timing was Garriott. So props to Garriott. Way to go, Garriott. So one interesting thing to discuss about this is that uh, unfortunately we don't know when the pictures were taken. If we knew exactly when those were taken, it might help to establish the movement of the object better because in the first three pictures, it was just a dot. And then all of a sudden it's a big object. So if he took the, the, whoever was operating the camera, I didn't see that detail. If they took the first three pictures in the first minute, and then they took the final picture after let's say nine minutes, then that gives the object plenty of time to move in like a linear fashion. And we don't need the object to move in some kind of crazy maneuver to get close enough for it to actually be seen as a structure. However, if these photographs were taken at regular intervals, or, you know, if there was not a large gap between picture three and four, that suggests that the object would have had to have a sudden burst of speed to get close enough to the space station to show that it had a structure. But we can at, we can at least say that probably it started very far on the horizon and it ended up very close to the Skylab, which means that it was moving 
on a similar orbit to Skylab, but probably faster than Skylab. But we don't know. I mean, this is all just sort of conjecture or whatever. We don't know for sure what what exactly it was doing because we don't have the the specific timestamps of those photos, unfortunately. It's a but, probe. It's just looking at us. Yeah, it's, it's just, just it, taking. It's just uh, having a, a nice night out on the uh, on the stars, right? Yeah, they're just joyriding around the universe. Yeah. Okay. So basically, we have some general assumptions we can make to get a general idea of how far away and how big it was. So according to the calculations made by Bruce Maccabi, Maccabi and uh, and his cohorts who wrote the paper, it was somewhere in the ballpark of 38 to 76 kilometers away from Skylab. And based on that, we get a minimum size of something like 336 feet across. And that's more than twice of the size of Skylab itself, which again is the largest man-made object in space at the time. And the upper estimates of the object um, are 800 feet across or so, which is, you know, really, really big. That's like, what, three football fields yeah. or something? Yeah, it's massive. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we don't have anything that big even to this day. That's that's massive. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Maybe if you, the International Space Station with all the solar panels and stuff, maybe. I don't know. But anyways, that's just huge. So these are based on the assumption that the object is perpendicular to the camera. If the object is rotated at all, then it would have to be even larger in order to appear that size because you're seeing it at, at like a profile. You're not seeing the entire length of the thing, if that makes sense. Okay, now Bruce Maccabee also discussed a little bit about the possible direction of movement of the object. If we assume that it was not moving in the same direction as Skylab, but on some sort of other trajectory, maybe perpendicular or at some sort of angle, then we can possibly have a smaller object. Because if there's the five seconds to pass into the shadow, right, that gives us the size and distance measurement. But if it was at a different angle, instead of going, you know, following Skylab directly, then it could take a lot longer to go in the shadow because it's not on the same path. And then we could make an argument that the object was a lot smaller than previously assumed. And that could mean that it could possibly be a man-made satellite. But um, I read through his, he did some math and stuff. And uh, I didn't really, I mean, I'm not that great at math. And it was like, you know, it was not algebra. <laughs> I'll just say there's like angles and stuff. And, uh, but according to him, it doesn't really line up. Like you can't really, there's no geometry where you can make to, that you can reconcile the, the size of the object being as small enough to be a satellite and match up still with what the astronauts witnessed. It just, it doesn't make sense to be that small, even at a trajectory that's not exactly lined up with, uh, with the Skylab. It doesn't matter where you put it. This thing was probably very large. Um, and even if it was a satellite, they were tracked at the time and they're still tracked today as they orbit, obviously. And to this day, there's still, there's no known man-made satellite that could explain the object like they would they would have been able to figure it out after the fact if it was a satellite exactly which one it was and to this day there's still no candidates that are available so based on that also it just i mean that may not be completely conclusive because maybe there's some kind of i don't know classified top secret stealth satellite that we still don't know about today but i mean that seems kind of unlikely all these years later after 73 probably we'd know about it and be declassified by now but Eh, who knows? We do have another clue. I mentioned earlier the color of the object. Uh, because it went dark when it passed into the shadow, it almost certainly did not have lights on it. 
Of course, I guess it could have turned its lights off, which could have, if it had lights on the object and those lights turned off, it might have made it look like it was going into the shadow, even though it didn't, which could sort of fool, like create the illusion. But um, that, that probably didn't happen because if you look at the picture, it doesn't look like lights, like single points of lights. It looks like an illuminated object. So it was reflecting sunlight, but the sunlight isn't red. So it was probably like a red object and the sunlight wasn't refracting through the Earth's atmosphere at that angle. So that couldn't have caused it to look red either. Now, the interesting thing is, is there are no red satellites and there are no red satellite, uh, satellite reflections or um, uh, what you would call it, solar panels. So that also is, it's not necessarily conclusive, but it's just another little clue that it probably was not a man-made satellite. Okay, well, at the end of the day, we don't really know what the object was, but we can say that it probably was not man-made. It could have been some sort of orbiting asteroid, perhaps, or something. Uh, but, I mean, that seems unlikely because, again, that object would have been very trackable, especially at that size. Um, and it would also be hard to explain how an asteroid could be on the same path and trajectory and how it could grow from like a dot into a large object in 10 minutes. Uh, if it, I feel like if it was an asteroid too, they would have identified it as such. They wouldn't have said it was weird and it probably wouldn't have looked red. It would have looked like gray or yellow or natural sunlight color or something. But uh, who knows? Anything's possible, I suppose. Maybe it was like a, a rusty iron meteor out there, right? Right. Yeah. Or it could, I mean, hey, it could very well just be one of the many space debris that we have. Yeah. The halo. Probably not though. With, if it was, you know, 330 to a thousand feet, probably is not space debris at that size, but, uh, who knows? Um, but I mean, by the same token, there isn't any evidence to say that it's like an extraterrestrial craft either. I guess at the end of the, at the end of the day with this one, all we have is really a mystery. It's just, it's just a really cool photograph or set of photographs. It's a, it's a good mystery. Like nobody knows what it is to this day. It's pretty much unsolved. In the photo log, NASA describes the object as simply satellite, comma, unmanned. So I guess they're, they don't know what it is either, but there is one detail that I noticed in this case that kind of makes you wonder. So NASA says that channel A was not recording. What they, they had a, what they call channel A that was recording them, their conversations all the time. And it would also record like data and stuff too. But uh, NASA says that the tape was not running, that it had run out and it had not been replaced yet. But if you remember early in the transcript, Owen Garriott said during the debriefing, it's, he said, it's all debriefed in terms of time on channel A, so the precise timing and location can be picked up from there. In other words, channel A was recording, so their conversation during the sighting was recorded. And if that's really the, the case, and NASA claims that it isn't, that means that we theoretically would have more precise information and in the conversations. So they might've said, or they might have the data as to when they took the pictures. Like if they took the pictures, they might've said, okay, taking picture one, taking picture two. And if we had the exact moment when those pictures were taken, that gives us a big clue to figure out, you know, to help identify this object. We know, for example, that would tell us right away if it made some unreasonable maneuver that a satellite would not have been able to make. It would, it would give us, you know, a pretty big hint. 
Um, but at the very least, it appears that there's some kind of cover-up going on here. If there's nothing to it, then why hide the tapes? I mean, at the end of the day, this isn't proof of anything either, except that NASA definitely has something to hide with this particular case. What they're hiding, we really don't know. We can only imagine. And that's, uh, that's pretty much all I have on Skylab 3 and its mysterious UFO. All right, Agent Ether, what do you got for us? Angels in space? Oh, nice. <laughs> this one really tickled my fancy. So in July of 1984, aboard the Salyut 7, there were some Russian cosmonauts, and they'd been in space for 155 days. Suddenly, their space station was bathed in an orange light, and it appeared to be on the outside, and then to penetrate through the walls. And it was so bright, it was blinding. And then it dimmed, looking kind of like an orange cloud. So there were three cosmonauts on board, Commander Oleg Atkov and Vladimir Solovyov and Leonard, gosh, Leonard Kazim. And, Kazim. Uh, <laughs> Kazim. And they said once the light diminished, they started looking for a fire. They thought maybe there was a fire on the spacecraft or an explosion. And instead, all of them reported seeing the faces of seven angels hovering outside. They told ground control they were humanoid with wings and halos. They traveled alongside the aircraft for 10 minutes before disappearing. Well, that doesn't sound normal at all. <laughs> so, I mean, at first... Um, their equivalent of ground control put it you know down to oxygen deprivation or hallucinations or Air something got poisoning, like that. Yeah. swamp gas <laughs> like you guys the planet venus <laughs> so so a few weeks later they were joined at day 167 by three additional crew um Svetlana Savitskai Ig Gosh, Igor Vol. You're offending these people's core. Okay, and one <laughs> other one. <laughs> there another, were six, another name that we can't pronounce. There were six total. Comrades. And the experience was repeated. Like really? the same thing happened. And the angels were described as as very large, um, up to 80 feet in height, with a wingspan as big as a 747. Dang. Damn. They were. I've heard of that. Yeah, they were. They were these glowing beings, and the cosmonauts. And the wings were kind of like they. They were like auras, almost, right? Like yeah. The, the wings and like how it kind of like came off of the their wings were almost jetpack like, you know. And there were like halos too. They had halos. Weird. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You know it's what I always trip. find really interesting in these cases is that people describe things based on their own cultural framework. So, for example, on a previous case, I talked about UFO sightings, you know, in 1966, where people described it as football-shaped, right? But they mean like an American football, not like soccer. And <laughs> if you go back to antiquity, you might see somebody describing something as a chariot in the sky, because that's all they know how to describe. So, to these people, they're describing it like angels, and that's their cultural reference. Sometimes I wonder, is... What what did it really look like? Is that just how they interpreted it? Like, it just won't fit into their brain, so they see it as angels. It's really fascinating to see what our, our, what we rationalize, you know what I mean? What we, we have to obtain to reality. It's like, oh, no, it's like we can't comprehend what we're seeing, so we're going to compare it to something that 
makes sense. You know, oh, it's a bird, but it's clearly not. So it's just, it makes you think. I, I think the one of the more famous like ancient alien episodes was when they were comparing angels and aliens. You know what I'm talking about? Which episode? There's lots of episodes like that. Yeah, I'm not sure which one specifically, but I mean, angels by definition are aliens, right? Sort of. I mean, they're not from they're not from Earth. They're they're not human. They're extraterrestrial. But uh, <laughs> so I mean, when they were saying how you know, you know, the whole you know God being born in itself was artificial insemination. You know, that that was a an episode on its own when they were talking about and now I gotta look it up. Now I'm bugged by it. <laughs> but yeah, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, oh well that's all I have on the on the angels. I hadn't heard that one before. That's a pretty cool Oh it, yeah, I was looking around for good good ones and I saw that one. That's so. a really good one. Yeah. And I've heard of that in other forms where it's like whether it be somebody dies, they believe that they, you know, get to just, you know, like just cruise across the cosmos as this entity. And I I personally think that would be really cool as if when you die, you just become this being of light or energy and you kind of just cruise around until you're needed again or something. It's a Star Trek episode like that. And cruise around and harass cosmonauts. Yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> that be that wouldn't be so bad, right? That that would be perfect, in my opinion. So I have another one. It was this one's more recent. It's um, August twenty twenty. Wow, that's really recent. Yeah, it's really recent. So it was Russian cosmonaut again, the Russians, Ivan Wagner, much easier to pronounce, and he posted a one minute video on Twitter, which I'll post on social media. And it's a video of the Aurora Australis, which I guess is the Southern Lights. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody talks about the Northern Lights, and I didn't really think about there being Southern Lights, but of course it makes sense. And uh, it's between the Antarctic and Australia. And he saw a series of five lights in a line in the distance between the 9 and 12 second mark. But the frames were captured at a one per second rate and then later reassembled with 25 frames per second. So he says his total observation time was about 52 seconds. And this uh, Twitter video went viral. You know, people people love a good UFO story. And he's dubbed them the space guests, although skeptics think they're probably satellites. They're probably satellites, you say? That's what the skeptics say. say. Uh, Is that the video you sent me earlier? Mm -hmm. That does not look like satellites to me. Can you send it to me? To moi? Yes, I will also send it to you. Is it it Starlink, perhaps? Uh, I guess it could be. (laughs) That's like the new swamp gas, right? It's always Starlink. (laughs) It's just Starlink. Swamp gas. I actually did see... What is this swamp gas? Why do I keep hearing this? What, are they saying I inhale swamp gas and I'm hallucinating? Oh, you're not familiar with the swamp gas story? No. Okay, so this was actually the very first episode I did of the podcast, which was um, Michigan, 1966. There was a lot of people over several days, or actually, if you go and look at the Blue Book files, or for months, actually, in the surrounding years even, people were seeing the similar objects. But um, there were a couple of prominent sightings. For example, a bunch of girls at an all-girls college in Hillsdale. The, I forget the exact number. Something, something like 25 or 30 girls or something like that. They all witnessed this object hovering around and moving around and stuff. And it, it was doing things that terrestrial craft cannot. Like basically maneuvering that would require 
uh, ignoring inertia, essentially starting and stopping uh, suddenly traveling very quickly from a dead stop, stuff like that. Right. And long story short, they sent Alan Hynek to investigate and uh, he concluded that it was swamp gas causing the sightings. Now, swamp gas is a real thing, right? It It's when matter decomposes, it creates, it can create sort of like this glowing look in the swamps. But there's a couple problems. First of all, we have some very detailed sightings. For example, Frank Manor and his son saw the object and they drew a picture and like they were very specific as to what it looked like did not look like swamp gas. Swamp gas looks like just kind of like a glow. It's not even that bright. But the biggest problem is that this happened when it was very cold out. In fact, almost freezing. It was, uh, I forget the exact temperatures in the different areas, but that data is available. I think I mentioned it in my episode, but it was either very close to freezing or freezing. You know, it was wintertime. So in order for swamp gas to happen, it has to be pretty warm, like summertime, like 100 degrees out kind of, kind of warm. It doesn't happen in the cold. So just that right away, we know that it's a BS explanation. And uh, it appears that Alan Hynek himself didn't even believe the explanation. And it's possible that he didn't come up with that himself, but he was told by his superiors to use that as an explanation. But um, that's maybe neither here nor there. But anyways, in a nutshell, <laughs> ever since then, well, people got really upset at the time because a lot of people had seen this and a lot of people were kind of worried about it because you know, the government couldn't explain it. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. People were kind of afraid. So when they come up with this explanation, it, it was really upsetting to Swamp people gas. because yeah. everybody knew that it was bullshit, you know, especially the people who had seen it. They knew it was not swamp gas. There's no way. It's one of the most ridiculous explanations ever given to a mass sighting. And that's why it's still in the vernacular today. People still call things, you know, if there's a ridiculous explanation or something, they still say swamp gas. Because it's just, you know, it's sort of lived on in the UFO lore, even though a lot of people may not know about the specific case that it comes from. But there's that, there's Venus, and there's weather balloons, you know. I was going to say, or, is, or is, yeah, Venus or Jupiter or some planet. Mass hysteria. Yeah. I tell you what, I look out my window yesterday, I saw Venus doing all kinds of weird zigzags up there. Man. Yeah, that, you know what? I saw that crazy planet doing that too. <laughs> that planet is out of control. <laughs> that planet is not right. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Agent Ether, after that little bit of a diversion there, what else you got for us? Well, I don't have astronauts in space, but I do have space. Space in space? Space in space. space. I have Google Earth. All right. And uh, hit it. People finding UFO and spacecraft using Google Earth from space. All right. That is so much more than what I have. And <laughs> I won't well, even, I I won't even waste a time. Yes, so please. in uh, June 2021, there's this um, area. It's about 150 miles southwest of the Groom Lake Air Base, which is a location for weapons testing for Area 51. There is a 340-foot teardrop crater. It's in the middle of Death Valley. It's about 150 miles away from the Pacific Ocean. And the teardrop indentation is mirrored by a dark-colored object and surrounded by large vehicles. So somebody was looking through Google Earth images, and, and they found this anomaly. And there's also um, a small boat by the vehicles, and just a few miles away from the site is a crashed jet. Hmm. Oh. 
There's a series of indentations or roads nearby, roughly in the shape of a Star of David. And <laughs> That's a six-pointed stars for all you people out there who don't know what that is. So skeptics say it's just an irrigation area in the middle of Satan. Death Valley. Well, I mean, everybody keeps a crashed jet near their irrigation, right? That's just a coincidence. Oh, just a coincidence. Okay. Yeah, skeptics say that was a coincidence. Others speculate the plane just got too close and was shot down. And as far as the large vehicles are, uh, some people speculate they could be bulldozers, but a lot of people agree they look like tanks. Hmm. So you have this area, may or may not be used for irrigation in the middle of Death Valley, crashed plane nearby tanks are very large bulldozers and skeptics say the tanks are decommissioned and the entire area is being used for target practice by air force bombers but that seems kind of strange because it's wait. actually pretty close wait, wait, wait. to a hold what? up there so <laughs> they got an area yes that they're irrigating what are they irrigating the tanks <laughs> i don't know they're they're storing hey, they need water too what are they, they growing like, is that like a vineyard out there and they're storing tanks in the vineyard? Like I, that doesn't make sense. It's like, I don't I know. Grow it, rust. You can grow algae on metal. Uh, <laughs> I think these skeptics are kind of over explaining this one, right? I mean, <laughs> what, is, what were you mentioning in Skinwalker Ranch? What were they growing to test radiation levels? Oh, that was like some kind of beans. Like bean yeah. sprouts or something. Yeah. Maybe the irrigation Bean. is to grow Bean sprouts. In Death Valley? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, stuff just catches on fire out there. Just you just you just throw some on the sidewalk. Well, there are no sidewalks, but I mean, you know what I mean. It gets so <laughs> hot that people who run in Death Valley because they're crazy, their sneakers will melt. Yeah, it's you're not growing oh, anything yeah. out there, man. That's crazy. Yeah, why would there be water out there at all? There would be no irrigation above ground. It would just evaporate. That doesn't make any sense at all. So I also have a, a sighting, Google Earth. These people, you know, they go through. They're really looking for something out there or something down here. This one's June 2015 in Antarctica. It was made public by Valentin Dick Terror. And there's what looks like an object, uh, maybe ice, maybe not, with a giant skid mark behind it. And this <laughs> image was actually taken by Google Earth in February of 2012, but he didn't find it till 2015. He's a Russian ET hunter. And later on, after that date, people went back and they started looking at the same location with Google Earth, but they were going, you know, um, um, backwards in time. So they looked at images from April and December in 2011. And right by this object, you can see a series of tanks all in a row. There's four of them. And ufologists speculate there's actually different types of tanks. Three are the same, but one is obviously different if you look at the images. The object in the image is estimated to be 204 feet wide by 40 feet tall. There's no tracks behind the tanks, but it can take as little as 10 minutes for something like that to become buried in the snow. So either way, you know, it's kind of weird. Much, much weird. Very weird. Yeah, skeptics say the coordinates that are given between the two... Um, Satellite images are slightly different, so it can't be the same site. Uh, let's say it's not even the same site. Why are there tanks in Antarctica? Hmm. Well, <laughs> why wouldn't there be tanks in Antarctica? <laughs> Strategic advantage. <laughs> I mean, if I had a tank, I would definitely put it in Antarct Antarctica, right? Hey, if we're attacked, hey, just put yourself. You're in the battlefield. We're attacked. Russia's invading. 
And we we got a, you're in the field in Antarctica. You need tanks. Boom. Got tanks. There were also some other Google Earth sightings that got debunked, but I still thought they were interesting. They saw some UFOs glowing, and they were yellow off of Woody Island in South China that did turn out to be boats. There Wait, was, they were off Woody Island? Yeah. Alan? That sound, oh, <laughs> it totally I, sounded like you said Alan. I think I've seen that one. It does look weird. It looks weird. It yeah. does, but it, it was definitely boats. They're identified as boats. And then there was in Romania, this one was really funny, it really looks like a UFO. Like it really, it's dome shaped and uh, it's pretty thick. It's metallic. It's shiny. And you look at this image and you're like, well, explain that. It's actually a hotel in <laughs> Romania. Okay. <laughs> so it's wow. there and it does look like a UFO, but it's a, uh, it's actually a hotel. Well, there have been buildings That's built so awesome. on purpose to look like UFOs. Like they had, like they had these houses that were, I forget what they were called, but the, the company went under, but they looked like, they were built to look like a disc-shaped UFO. Or oh, Bob yeah, Hope's there's house. like three of them, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. They're out in the desert or like some random offbeat like road. Yeah, I, for, I forget what they're called uh, offhand. But yeah, and then like uh, I think Bob Hope's house was roughly based on the idea of a UFO. So they have built buildings on purpose to look like a UFO. Bob Hope's house was built to what? <laughs> Yeah, supposedly the shape of it was inspired by a UFO. Google it. Okay, I will. All right, maybe I'm, you know, I'm going to Google that while you that talk. Fir- because that first place uh, that you mentioned, apparently those, if you go and hang out in each and every one of the, the structure, uh, apparently the acoustics are incredible, <laughs> which is nice. Hmm. It's in YouTube videos where they're just like singing in it, and it's like really nice. It's really trippy. So his his house was... 23,000 is, I mean, it's still there, 23,600 square feet. Oh, my goodness. It's <laughs> a big house. Can you imagine having to vacuum that floor? Oh, I'm assuming <laughs> he has, like, servants. Well, he, he must have had, like, the servants must have had, like, you know, like those lawnmowers that you sit on? But, like, for the house? Yeah, like a vacuum like that where you just <laughs> ride it through the house. <laughs> like a giant Roomba, but... Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, Ether, what else you got for us? Well, fun fact, uh, you can use Google Earth, but do you know you can also use Google Mars? Really? Yeah, you can explore the moon or Mars, on, but only on your desktop with Google Earth. Uh, just like viewing the Earth, you can turn on and off different layers. You can measure things. You can zoom in and out and explore areas of interest, which have been placed uh, with markers by different people. And it does take longer to load the more layers you put on, but uh, not that long. And there's some really interesting markers like uh, crashed missions and curious finds and landmarks. Okay, so in March 2015, UFO hunter Marcelo Iratsusta created a video from Google Mars app, and he found an object that was 3.5 miles across and circular in appearance. UFO researcher Scott Waring alleges there are two gold faces on the object when you zoom in. So you can view it by installing Google Earth and selecting Mars from the planet icon toolbar from the drop-down menu. And you can enter in the coordinates, and I'll go ahead and post them on social media, and you'll immediately see this object, and it does not look natural Hmm. at all. (laughs) It it definitely looks, you know, alien. Yeah, I've seen pictures on Mars, and a lot of them... People try to point out stuff, and I'm like, well, it's kind of blurry or whatever. But there was one, I think I showed it to Agent Ether, 
where it looks legit like a plant or something. Like it just, it does not look normal. It looks out, way out of place. So there are, I have seen a couple of strange things on Mars. I have not seen this specific one though. Well, there's also a, I don't know if you've heard of the Japanese tomb of Kofun. Um, it's Kofun. <laughs> it's this keyhole shaped massive thing on a flat, empty plane. And if you compare it to this specific location on on Mars and you can compare and contrast the two, uh, they actually look very similar, like the lines do and the angles and that sort of thing. So some people say that perhaps suggests there was an ancient civilization on Mars and there's some connection between us here on Earth and that ancient civilization on Mars. Now, obviously, that area has been subject to a lot of erosion, but both of them have that same keyhole type uh, shape. And again, I'll put the coordinates in for Google Earth and Google Mars, and you can put in those coordinates and uh, put in those coordinates. Yeah. And see what you think for yourself. Does it look, it looks like an unnatural shape then? It does. It looks very unnatural. I I tried to go through when I was looking for examples on Google Earth and Google Mars because there were a lot of things to sort through on the interwebs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tried to find the ones that were the most interesting and the ones I thought were the truest. You know, the ones I didn't feel skeptical about or the least skeptical about anyways. <laughs> Yeah, those are always the fun ones. Those are the fun ones. So I kind of, you know, threw out the stuff where I was like, well, I think the skeptical explanation is a good explanation. And I stuck with the ones where where they were interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. Were those all of your sightings you had for us, Agent Ether? That's all my sightings. Okay. Well, I suppose oh, no. Mars is technically in space. <laughs> <laughs> so it sort of matches the theme of the episode. But uh, yeah, so I, that's all I had. Um, I sort of looked at some other stuff, but uh, I figured that I took so many notes on the uh, on Skylab 3 that I thought that that was enough. You know, we didn't really need more. And um, there's actually a lot more sightings by astronauts in space, so much so that we could easily do another episode. We didn't even talk about like the STS-48 or, you know, like like all the the big ones, like they have actual video footage of that are really interesting looking and somewhat difficult to explain. Uh, I won't get into them here, but I vote for another episode. That's for sure. I think we should do like a timeline episode and like start at the beginning of the space missions and like work our way up to the present. Yeah, we could do something like that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Because there are a ton of them. I was going to mention about like uh, some of the live stream UFOs and a lot of the spiting, the sightings that we've seen mm-hmm. so far that are, you know, questionable and that one where, you know, but uh, I just didn't really get to dive into it. I didn't have much time. And uh, so, yeah, I'm all up for another episode, 100%. Well, I do have one that's I can do a uh, an honorable mention of because it's a really short one. So on January 2015, the International Space Station, uh, they were able to observe an object in the distance on the live feed. But as soon as the object appeared, like on the horizon of the Earth, the feed cut out for five minutes. And when the feed returned, the object was gone. So a lot of people think that this object was either some kind of classified satellite or perhaps an alien craft. We don't really know, but people suspect that this was some sort of cover-up, that they cut the feed to hide that object. 
And NASA does have a feed delay that they can use in case there's something they want to hide on purpose. So in this case, it appears that it is possible that they were trying to hide something. We don't know for sure, and that's pretty much all there is to that one. But you can actually look up the video and see the object on the horizon. It just looks like a point of light. So you can't really tell what it is, unfortunately. And then you can see the feed being cut. But uh, it's it's interesting. What I like about these cases is that um, we have good witnesses. We have very, very reliable and highly trained witnesses. And we have photographic or video evidence. And nowadays, there are so many UFO videos like on YouTube or whatever. And the editing software has gotten so good that anybody at home, literally anybody at all, can create a UFO video from scratch if they want to. So it makes it sort of less reliable than if you have something that's like a live public feed or something that you know is a reliable witness. It's just a lot more interesting because you know these are legitimate videos. I mean, it's proven they're legitimate videos and photos. We don't know what is in these videos and photos, but we do know that they're not faked. And that's one of the reasons why I really like these cases. And I actually would like to do another episode maybe on some of this stuff. But um, I don't know, maybe next week, maybe not. Next week, I think I have scheduled in the moon landings, which I think is going to be a super fun one to do. So maybe we'll revisit this one at some point in the future. But anyways, that's all I had for this week. How about you guys, Agents Kruger and Ether? Good to go. Good to go. All right. I'm, I'm solid. Well, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by suggesting us to your friends and or favorite social media outlets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Keep it strange.